Hello, sweethearts. Welcome to Love Letters 2. I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Melissa. Thanks for tuning in today. We're so glad you joined us. Today, we have two very different love letters. And Alicia, you're going to start us off with an actual love letter. I am. One of my favorite sort of sideways love letters. Dear Joan Crawford, this time from a young Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to his bride, Joan Crawford, in July of 1930 from Vanity Fair. Many, many moons ago. So many moons ago. This delightful little less than thousand word portrait of Joan Crawford written by her young bridegroom of a little over a year is simply tremendous. With Joan Crawford celebrating her birthday tomorrow, March 23rd, I thought this might be a wonderful time to bring an actual love letter to the show. It's in the theme and everything. It sure is. I don't know, Melissa, what do they say? The more things change, the more they stay the same. I think I've heard that before, yeah. People wonder if our personalities are right, cooked and finished in our youth. How much do we change over time? These are fantastic philosophical questions. My love letter today is a tiny little time capsule to a young 20-something-year-old Joan Crawford just a few years into her legendary career in Hollywood and, well, her life, too, written by her bridegroom. This is a portrait of Joan Crawford by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. from Vanity Fair from July of 1930 a scant 92 years ago. (laughs) Here we go. Joan Fairbanks is my bosom swelling. Nay Crawford is one of the few people in the film colony who does not change her manner at the close of a working day. If she is any different, then it is only an instinctive nervous letdown after the tension to which she subjects herself during her work. She has the most remarkable power of concentration of anyone I have ever known. Under any circumstances, this tremendous faculty is at her very fingertips. She is consumed with an overwhelming ambition. I sincerely doubt if she has the faintest idea where her ambition is to carry her, but that does not worry her at all. She is always prepared for any emergency. She has a great capacity for study. If she feels that she is not up to standard in a certain line, she will go to any extreme to master it. Although she has a great desire to write, it is the one ambition in which she lacks the self-confidence that is evident in her other undertakings. In her spare time, where there is such time, she covers herself in yarn, threads and needles and proceeds to sew curtains and make various types of rugs. Entre nous, they are quite good. She is not easily influenced and must be thoroughly convinced before she will waver in her opinion on any point. She must always feel herself moving forward. And when anything tends to arrest that progress, she sulks mentally. She will stand by a belief with Trojan ferocity. She has temperament without being temperamental. She demands the things to which she knows she has the right and will ask for no more until she knows with all sincerity she is worthy of it. This is particularly true in her professional life. When she meets with disappointment, 
She has a tendency towards bitterness rather than remorse, which no doubt is a throwback from an acute memory of less happy days. She is extremely sensitive to surroundings and instantly conscious of any discord. When she is depressed, she falls into an all-consuming depth of melancholy out of which it is practically impossible to recover her. At these times, she has long crying spells. When it is over, she is like a flower that has had a sprinkling of rain and then blossoms out in brighter colors. She is extraordinarily nervous. She's frightened out of her wits to be left alone in the dark. She has a secret desire to eat everything with a spoon as a small child would. She has seen life in its less fortunate aspects, yet remains thoroughly unsophisticated at heart. However, she likes to be thought sophisticated. Like many people who have had little happiness in their own childhood, she has a tremendous sympathy for children. She loves to play like a child and adores dolls. She takes a great interest in clothes and all things feminine, yet has the analytical mind of a man. She is an excellent businesswoman, but a poor trader. She is intolerant of people's weaknesses. If someone does her a wrong, she is slow in forgetting it. But when she does, there is no doubt of her attitude. It is difficult for her to hide her feelings, and she is embarrassingly honest in her opinions. She wears her fingernails at an abnormal length. She is forever devising new ways to fix her hair. She loves to cook. She is thoughtful to a point of extravagance. She never drinks, but smokes like a cowboy on his last cigarette. She is sensitive about her lower teeth being crooked. She has a deadly fear of all doctors. She takes a pardonable pride in the stride she has made in her chosen field, yet she is never satisfied with her work. Jealousy is not in her makeup, but she resents those who have become successful without serving the same trying apprenticeship that she herself experienced. She loves to have a masseuse give her a treatment, and she could spend hours every day having her head scratched. She walks pigeon-toed. Her temper in its threatening stages is alarming, but actually it is harmless. She has a passion for antique furniture. She drinks quantities of coffee and puts away at least eight or 10 glasses of water every day. She has a tendency to dramatize any anecdote which she may relate. Music affects her emotionally. She is sentimental to an extreme degree and is gullible when the most obvious sob stories are told. These are the innumerable things that I might add to whatever I have already stated, but I hope I have already given a fair picture of her. She is a 10-year-old girl who was put on her mother's dress and has done it convincingly. Here's to you, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., for providing such a charming capture and little slice of time about the woman that you found so extraordinary for a small segment of your life. And here's to you, Joan Crawford. I share the sentimental to an extreme degree with you. I identify with so much of this love letter. Happy birthday to you. 
I just think there's something so extraordinarily beautiful about that love letter, Melissa, the honesty of the way that her young groom is reading her personality. Yes. And it definitely gives you the idea that it's a snapshot in time. I do love a good love letter. This one just does delight. That's a good one. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with a different kind of love letter that you're bringing us this week, Melissa. Very different. Be right back. And we're back. Melissa, you're going to be bringing us a different kind of love letter today. So very different. Yes. So I am not going to preface a lot. I'm going to let the story speak for itself. Dear Olga of Kiev, while many of the details of your story are pretty gruesome and hopefully at least in part apocryphal, I commend the fighting attitude behind your story. In this time of tragedy for Ukraine, it is encouraging to be reminded of the heroic and indomitable spirit of the Ukrainian people. Olga of Kiev, saint of Ukraine, you are also the patron saint of defiance and vengeance. And as the world stands with Ukraine, we celebrate your determination to avenge the evil acts committed against you. Olga, you were born sometime between the years of 890 and 925. The details of your early life are not well known because, well, you were a girl. And sadly, nobody thought the births and the lives of girls were important enough to record accurately. So while we don't know your exact age at the time of your marriage, we do know that you were no older than 15. You were wed to Prince Igor, who would eventually rule over the realm that includes modern-day Ukraine. You and Igor had one young son, Svetislav. The realm's economy depended on the prince, your husband, collecting tribute from the people, then selling those goods to Constantinople. But Igor got a little greedy, and he began to demand more than what was ever expected with previous rulers. And not surprisingly, the people didn't like that. One particular tribe called the Drevlians, decided that they just weren't going to pay. How'd that go? It didn't go that well. So when he went to demand the payment, the Drevlians murdered him. And they didn't just murder him. They murdered him in a very brutal way. So here's how it was described in the only chronicle of that time. They bent down two birch trees. Then they tied the prince's feet and legs to those tree trunks. And once he was secured to the two trees, they let the tree snap back and straighten. Oh, tearing, this is horrible. It's really bad. Tearing Prince Igor's body apart. Feeling pretty proud of themselves, the Drevlians sent an entourage of 20 men to the city of Kiev to tell you, Olga, of their victory and the fate of your husband. Not only did they inform you that they had murdered your husband, but they also demanded that you then marry the man that oversaw the murder. Oh, heck no. Their own prince, Maul. Your son was only two at the time, and marrying the Drevlian prince would put both of you under their control, and then they would rule your realm. And you just didn't think this was a good plan. You decided this just wasn't going to work for you. But you kept your wits about you, and you didn't show your hand. 
You were very cunning and smart. So you greeted those Drevlian diplomats warmly and you kept calm. You had already made a plan to avenge your husband. And, well, it was going to become the thing that legends are made of. I'm not sure, Alicia, that you're ready for this, but here goes. Olga, you weren't going to sit back and accept this injustice. You're going to protect your son, your lands, and your people, and you fought back. You would do this in a way that would make them wish they had never messed with your family to begin with. So this is what you said to the group of Dredlians that came to inform you of your husband's murder and their plans for you to marry their prince. You said, your proposal is pleasing to me indeed, and my husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say we will not ride on horses nor on foot carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. Well, they believed this was going to be a great honor to be carried into her court upon their boat. So the next morning, Olga, you sent your people who picked up that boat and they carried it to the place where the night before you had ordered a large, deep pit to be dug. And then you had them throw that entire boat along with all the men into that large, deep hole where they were trapped. And then you ordered them to fill in the hole where the Drevlians were buried alive. Okay, well, some of us might think, okay, well, she, she got them back and we're gonna move on, but no, no, no. This was oh, not enough. More? There's so much more. Phase one. So anyone who thought this was the end of your vengeance would be wrong. You then sent a message to Prince Maul saying that you'd be so happy to marry him, but that you were somewhat insulted by the peasants he had sent to greet you, and that you expected him to send a delegation of his highest ranking men to honor you with the proposal next time. Unaware of the fate of the first group he had sent, Prince Maul agreed, and he sent a group of governors to honor you, his future bride. It's a trap. It's such a trap. When the governors arrived, you said that you would not meet with them until they had cleaned themselves. And after their long journey, they were happy to oblige. A warm bath sounded fabulous. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Well, once they were all inside the bathhouse, you quickly ordered that all the doors be locked and then you ordered it burnt down. I was afraid of that. Yeah, yep, yep. But... <laughs> Olga was still not done. Oh no, Olga. Olga, Olga. After all, the men who had ordered her husband's murder hadn't even been dealt with yet. So this time, Olga sent a message to the Drevlian saying again how happy she would be to marry Prince Maul, but that first she needed to properly honor and mourn her husband. So, Olga, you demanded that Prince Maul prepare great quantities of mead for a funeral feast, befitting a slain prince. And mead, for anyone who doesn't know, is a type of wine. It was a fermented honey drink. It's delicious. So Takes a long time to make, though. Yes, well, and she required a lot of it. But he agreed. He thought, sure, yeah, that makes sense. So you said that you would need to be allowed to weep over his tomb when you arrived, and then that everyone would sit down to a proper funeral feast. 
After drinking copious amounts of the funeral wine, the Drevlians passed out. And uh, once you were confident that they were unconscious, you ordered your people to massacre them. According to the primary chronicle of this event, over 5,000 Drevlians were killed that night. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So if anyone at this point was thinking, maybe we shouldn't have messed with this Olga chick, they were right, but it still wasn't over. Not done. Because Olga, she was mad. She was going to make them realize their mistakes. So at this point, (laughs) most people would think, Olga, look, vengeance is yours. You've won the day, Olga. You've won it. You've won it. Yeah. Yeah, You showed them. You know, just go home. But uh, no, she didn't. So what she had then was her army surround the city for over a year and didn't let any supplies in. And when they were finally on the verge of starvation, they agreed to fully surrender if you would leave them in peace. And you said, people... I understand you're a beaten down group now, and um, I'm going to show you mercy. But what I need you to do first is I'm going to need three pigeons and three sparrows from every household. I mean, relieved to get rid of you, Olga. They were all like, yes, please. Here are your birds. But that night, you had your people tie a cloth that had been soaked in sulfur around each bird's leg. And then you sent those birds free. And since they were homing birds, they flew right back. This is positively diabolical. Um, So those birds went back to their wooden nests and their homes under the thatched roof throughout the city. And once it got to a certain temperature, the sulfur ignited and burned the entire city to the ground. And now that everyone in the entire city had been destroyed, your vengeance was satisfied. The Drevlians wish they had never messed with you, Olga of Kiev. But as I said at the beginning, she was a saint. And well, these are not the acts that get someone sainted. So there's more. Do go on. <laughs> yeah, she had a few more tricks up her sleeve. So after she dealt with the Drevlians, she made some major improvements. She set up hunting grounds and trading posts and towns. She set up an administrative state to run the realm. Olga then reformed the system of collecting tribute, which was the cause of the trouble in the first place. This would be the first legal reform recorded in all of Eastern Europe. So it's pretty remarkable. And a few years later, Olga would travel to Constantinople to advance the trade agreements with the Emperor Constantine VII. And, oh, he liked her. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. But Olga, you just weren't impressed or interested in his advances in flattery, and you definitely weren't interested in marrying him. You were in a little bit of a pickle because you really couldn't risk offending such a powerful man, and you thought you figured out a way you could get out of this situation. You were, after all, a pagan, and he was a Christian. You agreed that you would be baptized, but only if he himself did it. And he said, absolutely, I'll baptize you and I'll be your godfather. And this happened. That's not how it worked. And after she was converted, Constantine, of course, expected her to marry him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but she knew. I don't even, I don't even know what she's going to do now. She's so unpredictable. She's, (laughs) yes, she has proven a force to be reckoned with. 
Well, she knew that marriage would strip her of her hard-earned power. I mean, she hadn't come by that easily. And also it would put the realm under the control of the Byzantine Empire. And she didn't want that for her son, who she was acting as regent for. So Olga, always a very clever and cunning woman, said to the emperor, oh, how can you possibly marry me after you baptized me and called me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. Oh, Olga. She had outwitted him. Yeah, she did. He respected her for her intellect. And all was forgiven. So, Olga, when you returned to your realm, you destroyed pagan idols, but you refused to persecute the pagans and non-Christians. You did remain a Christian throughout your life, and you are credited with introducing Christianity to the area, giving you the title of Saint Olga of Kiev. Is your story of defiance and vengeance a myth? Partially, maybe. But we know after your husband was brutally murdered that you did, in fact, lead a successful military campaign to avenge him and to take back what rightfully belonged to your realm. You ruled as regent for your young son until he was of age. And when you died, you were greatly mourned by your family and your people. So here's to you, Olga, a fierce leader, defender of your family and your realm, and certainly a saint you don't want to mess with. May your spirit be with the Ukrainian people today and always. Melissa, that was amazing. I had no idea about St. Olga, patron saint of defiance. Yes, she, she defied and she, she showed them. And as I said in the story, hopefully some of that's an exaggeration. It's apocryphal, but Boy, is it an inspiration for a fighting spirit. It's incredible. Really incredible. I love our little podcast. I do too. I love learning these things about incredible people. Thank you for that. Hey, thanks to all y'all for tuning in to this episode of Love Letters 2 with our love letters to Joan Crawford and St. Olga. We'll be back with you again on Thursday with two brand new love letters. Can't wait to see you back. We hope you have a wonderful week in the meantime. Until we meet again, stay in love. Thanks for listening to Love Letters 2, a Hemlock Creatives production. Feel like showing some love to Love Letters 2? We'd love it if you tell a friend or leave us a kind review or even come and visit us on social media. You can find us at Instagram or Facebook at Love Letters 2 Podcast. You can also reach out and email us at loveletters2podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at loveletters2podcast.com. Until we meet again in the next episode, darlings, stay in love.